NFL wildcard weekend is upon us. I'll break down all the games with top storylines and predictions to get you ready for the road to Super Bowl 57. Georgia rules the college football world again after a good old-fashioned beatdown against TCU. A couple of returns in the NBA this week as Donovan Mitchell visits his old stomping grounds for the first time in Salt Lake while Steph Curry is back as he tries to propel the Warriors back in the West. The Carlos Correa soap opera is finally over as he re-ups with the Twins. Back at it, delivering a midweek pod chock full of sports talk, analysis, and opinions. It's all coming up, but first, this message. Jay Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there. Whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Another holiday weekend is upon us. Ah, the beauty of a mid-January respite. But before we get to that, there's quite a bit to discuss as I delve into all that's happening throughout the sports galaxy as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. As the NFL wildcard weekend stares us in the next 48 hours from the time of this recording, and there's quite a bit to get into, lots of different storylines, a couple that are going to pretty much be at the forefront when we look at this weekend, which I don't know how exciting it's going to be, but I'll get to that in a minute. The first line of action is the health of DeMar Hamlin, and boy, has the news been nothing but positive ever since the early part of the week where he was able to be discharged from a Cincinnati hospital, was flown back to Buffalo, stood in a hospital there locally overnight, and then was released on Tuesday afternoon. It looks like he's come out on the other side feeling good. I don't know if he's going to be around his teammates. I would think he'd probably make an appearance at some point here in the next couple of days. But we all know that he's been resting well. He's recuperated. Is he 100% just yet? I can't say that. And from all the reports, it looks like he is fine and he's able to get around, but not to the point where I'm sure he could be just engulfed, surrounded by his brothers and his coaches, training staff, etc. But the... Big news coming out of Buffalo is that he is fine, he is well, he is back in Buffalo, and boy, all the thoughts, 
prayers, well wishes have certainly come true. And all we could say is thank goodness for that after what we witnessed there 10 nights ago in Cincinnati. And now as we turn to the weekend, as far as storylines, well, let me give you an overview and then get to the storylines. The overview is out of these six games, and the thing is, it's really five, because when we reconvene on Monday, those five wildcard games will be in the books, but the sad part is that the best matchup out of all of them will take place Monday night. And we would think that Dallas at Tampa, which will be the cherry and should be, is one that we're going to have to wait until we get past this entire weekend. That means we have to possibly get through the slog of Seattle going to San Francisco, San Francisco, winners of 10 straight heading into this postseason. Jacksonville and the Los Angeles Chargers. Yes, the Young Guns, Trevor Lawrence and Justin Herbert. But what kind of game can we expect with the first-timers heading into the postseason to kick off, which we would only hope would be not only be long NFL careers, but many attempts in the postseason to try to get to a Super Bowl. Miami and Buffalo, you're going to have a third-string quarterback. For the Dolphins, go up to Orchard Park. And even though they were there a few weeks ago, mind you, Tua Tagovailoa was the quarterback. But what kind of output can you get from a Dolphin offense, which was from hunger on Sunday, as we saw against the Jets? The middle game between the Giants and Vikings, a rematch of what was a matchup on Christmas Eve, which led to a 61-yard field goal for the Vikings to be victorious. And then the Sunday night game, where we may not even see Lamar Jackson So talk about primetime between two division rivals where you may get Anthony Brown, the third-string quarterback, similar to what you may get from the first game on Sunday. Who knows? The Bengals could probably pace them from pillar to post, and by halftime, the game could be over. And then that leads you to Monday night. So who knows what we're going to get this weekend. And we could say that for any NFL weekend, understood. But now as we get into the storylines of the wildcard weekend... I don't think there's a lot of intrigue based on what I just told you. The twos versus sevens, that's could be disastrous because Miami-Buffalo, as I mentioned, and even the Seattle-San Francisco game, two out of the first three games of the wildcard weekend, they could be over by halftime. Or who knows, maybe even in the second quarter for that matter. So now you have to deal with the other four games to see what you're going to get out of that. I think three of the six games have a potential to be very good. That being the Giants and Vikings, of course, Dallas and Tampa, and I would think Chargers and Jaguars. The other three games, I wouldn't even say they're a coin flip. They could probably be bad games to the point where they may be unwatchable. And as we start off with storyline number one, or really number two, as I went through that little, I don't want to say diatribe, but for the legend of Brock Purdy, and everything that has happened with the Niners since he was inserted in the lineup after Jimmy Garoppolo was knocked out of that game against the Dolphins there a few weeks back. Can he continue to not only play at this clip, but now that he's into the postseason, that the competition is going to be a little stiffer, Saturday notwithstanding, no offense Seattle Seahawks, and the light's a lot brighter, can they actually run the table to not only get to a Super Bowl, but win it? Because when you've already won 10 straight, and now with the wild card round and then being the first game up on the weekend, can they actually get past that game to host another game the following week in all likelihood against the Vikings and then go to Philadelphia 
one more time in all likelihood to play in an NFC title game. And then two weeks after that in Glendale surroundings that they're very familiar with to play the AFC champion and then be the last team standing to win a Super Bowl. I know that sounds like a lot to ask, especially from a guy like Brock Purdy. And we know that the way Kyle Shanahan sets up his offense, it's not really quarterback driven. It's pretty much manage the game. Don't turn the ball over. Give it to your running backs or your playmakers on the team. We know that it's an offense. I'm not going to say it's similar to Bill Walsh if you want to go back 40 years, but we all know it's not about Brock Purdy trying to throw the ball down the field, trying to stretch defenses. Everything's going to be short. Everything's going to be safe. He's going to let the Elijah Mitchells, the Debo Samuels, the Christian McCaffreys, the George Kittles, the Brandon Ayukes, a very talented and, as we know, above-average offensive team. He's going to let them cook as Purdy just tries to do what he needs to do in that offense in order for him to get to where the Niners and obviously the bigger goal is going and winning a Super Bowl. That's number two. The third storyline has to be the Cowboys, and I hate to bang this drum because, as we all know, the Cowboy regurgitated narrative is Dak Prescott. Can he come through in the clutch? What about the job status of a one Mike McCarthy if this team loses? Jerry Jones, he's already put out the vote of confidence and actually has complete confidence in Dak Prescott, despite the fact that he led the league in interceptions, was actually tied in the regular season, and has not been good here down the stretch. And even though Dak, who has not played well this year, he could certainly change that going to Tampa, a team that they know pretty well considering they played week one this year and they lost 19-3. to And that was a game where Dak injured his thumb to where he was out for five weeks before returning there after Cooper Rush filled in nicely. And they also played week one last year when Tampa won the Super Bowl and they opened up the NFL season in Tampa where the Cowboys actually played pretty well. So Dak, we know he's capable. Dak, we know he has weapons, although he doesn't have that big-time receiver. Yes, you want to say CeeDee Lamb. To me, he's more of a 1A and a bonafide 2. But even with guys like the tight end and Dalton Schultz, of course, we know about the backfield in Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard and Michael Gallup, another wideout. But for whatever the reason, it always seems to be that the Cowboys, once they get to this spot, whether it's a wild card round or even a divisional round, but the one thing that Dak Prescott does not have on his playoff resume is a road playoff win. And now he has an opportunity in front of him to finally secure that first road victory in the playoffs. Is he going to do it? What's going to happen with McCarthy? Is this team going to be... Discipline to the point where they're not going to have false starts and personal fouls as we saw last year against the 49ers in the wild card round. And Mike McCarthy with time management and clock management and Dak Prescott knowing the rules where he has to give the ball to the referee before he snaps it as we saw there when time expired in the waning seconds of that game against the Niners. All this comes to a cauldron. All this comes to a head. All this is what the Cowboy fan is going to be thinking about once that ball is kicked off at around 8.15 Monday night. And here's another thing you have to think of, which is an underlying story. Teams that have been at least four games better in the regular season than their playoff opponent. Now, I don't have the entire record, but 
a lot of these teams, and there's several examples, and not only are the Cowboys involved, but you have a couple other teams involved this year as well into this postseason. One of them being the Niners, 13-4, and going up against Seattle, 9-7. and The Buffalo Bills, 13-3, and going up against a 9-8 and Miami Dolphin team. And then you have the Cowboys, who are 12-5, and going up against the 8-9 and Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And even with that four-game disparity, as we look back in the history of NFL playoff lore, the first one that comes to mind, of course, and it sticks to the ribs, Pittsburgh in 2011, when they were 12-4 and going up against the 8-8 and Broncos, and we all know the Tim Tebow first pass to the dearly departed, and may he rest in peace, Demarius Thomas, 80-yard touchdown, and the Broncos beat the Steelers in that opening round wildcard game. You had the Giants at 9-7 and in that same year beat the Green Bay Packers who were 15-1. and So that was a six-game disparity. And we know the Giants went into Lambeau and beat them. You had New Orleans who were 11-5 and in 2010 go up against the 7-8-1 Seattle Seahawks. And that's the famous Marshawn Lynch run 67 yards to where the Seahawks were victorious and disposed of the defending champs. And then you had the Arizona Cardinals, who were 11 and five. They had to go to Carolina as they were seven, eight and one, and they beat them in an opening round. And I believe that was 2012. So you have all these different scenarios of teams that have been much better than their opponent, where they had to go on the road in the postseason. And believe it or not, the team that was at 500, under 500, or just a smidge over, beat the team that was much more superior than them in the regular season. So that's something else that you're going to have to think about if you're the Cowboys in particular because we don't think that Miami's going to go into Buffalo and win or same for Seattle into San Francisco. But that's something that you're going to have to pay attention to if you're a Cowboy fan because if the Buccaneers, and they obviously can win the game, we all know who's that quarterback, and the Buccaneers do have that pedigree despite the fact there's no Gronkowski, no Antonio Brown. Obviously, Bruce Arians is not the coach. You have Todd Bowles, and you really have to worry about him if you're a Buccaneer fan. But you still have to factor in that the Bucks did fall four games behind them, not necessarily in the standings, but for everything that I just detailed, there is a possibility that Tampa could come out on top and the Cowboys with four more victories and the Buccaneers could go off into the January night, not coming back for a divisional round playoff game. So you have that to deal with. And as we talk about these games in detail, we all know that they're rematches in each one of these six games. Seattle, San Francisco, is Seattle just happy to be there? They did overachieve this year despite the fact that they stumbled down the stretch and for everything that I mentioned about the Niners with the legend of Brock Purdy not losing and the way their offense, and I haven't even talked about their defense. Could you even imagine? Here I am breaking down their offensive weapons and what Purdy has done, but as we all know, the Niners arguably have the best defense in the sport. So, we know that they swept the Seahawks during the regular season. And do the Seahawks have any shot to win this game? I have to say they don't. I have to call it like I see it. And as we will talk about later on, where TCU and how their glass slipper just shattered at SoFi Monday night against the Georgia Bulldogs, but the week prior, TCU had all the breaks in the world in order for them to beat Michigan. I think... The same thing's going to have to happen with Seattle here 
because unless Brock Purdy's going to be a turnover machine and Kenneth Walker, the running back for the Seahawks, is going to start running roughshod over that defense, there is no way that I think that the Seahawks are going to come out victorious in this game. I could see this being 31-13, San Francisco. As for the Chargers and Jaguars, as we talked about the Young Guns, I wonder if Jacksonville, for all that's happened here in the second half of the season, not to say that they have pressure on them. I mean, the game is at home. The game is in their building. They did not play well against Tennessee. They got a huge break there with that fumble recovery by Josh Allen to ice the game against Tennessee to win the division. But I just don't know if Jacksonville, if they're going to be Ready, yes, and we know the coach, Doug Peterson, who's been down this road before and won a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles back in 2017, but I just wonder, are the bright lights going to be too big for Trevor Lawrence and for Jacksonville, knowing that they're hosting this game as opposed to going on the road to where maybe they're not in sync? And on the flip side of that, I can't trust Brandon Staley as far as I could throw him, but because they're on the road and I understand they got to travel west to east, But something tells me, and I can't trust the Chargers a thousand percent either, based on what I just mentioned about Staley and not being able to trust him as far as his decisions when it comes to clock management and going for fourth downs early in the game. And maybe who knows, they have a quick trigger finger and throw the challenge flag on a play that's obviously non-reversible or unreversible, whatever you want to call it. So... For whatever the reason, I just feel in my gut I trust the Chargers just a slight bit more, only because no pressure, they're on the road, Jacksonville, who knows if that building's even going to be sold out, you would think they will be sold out, but for whatever the reason, I just like the Chargers a tiny bit more, and I could see this being a close game, could it be exciting? It could, do I think it could be turnover prone, based on, this is the first foray for both of these quarterbacks, absolutely, I could see some fumbles, I could see some interceptions, some costly mistakes even. But I'm going to pick the Chargers in a close game. I'm going to say 23-21. Miami going to Buffalo if it's Skylar Thompson. I mean, seriously? You might as well have me a quarterback. And no offense to Thompson. I get it. That's pretty harsh. And people are going to say, Jay Reels, come on. You never even stepped in a huddle. And you think that you're going to go in there and play a lot better than Skylar Thompson? Of course not. But really, do the Dolphins have any shot? I would think that the Seahawks have a better shot to upset San Francisco than the Dolphins do in Orchard Park. And with Tua, you got to wonder, these concussions, long-term, he's already suffered three over the course of the last few months. I'd be shocked if he plays in this game. And Teddy Bridgewater, we know he has this finger issue with his right hand, and that's his throwing arm and throwing hand. How that's going to be as far as maybe him being a game-time decision, I don't think so. But even with Bridgewater under center, he doesn't give them even a 10% chance better than Skylar Thompson to win this game. And Buffalo, we already know that they played a home game last week against New England. So all of the DeMar Hamlin, which I'm sure whether he's on the sidelines or maybe in a press box or in a luxury suite, At that point on Sunday, who knows? I don't know what the doctor's orders are for Hamlin come Sunday. But if he's going to be in the building and once the camera shows him, you can forget about it. That 
Bills Mafia is going to be in an uproar, which means curtains for the Dolphins. I could see this being similar to what we saw last year with New England and Buffalo in that wild card round where the Bills just ran roughshod over them. I could see this being a 41-10 type of game. The Giants in Minnesota, I talked about it earlier with the matchup that we saw on Christmas Eve between these two teams, and it came down to a last-second field goal of 61 yards by the kicker, Greg Joseph. The one thing about the Vikings, for a team that was 13-4, and and even though they won a lot of close games, and they've been in a lot of close games, and think about this, they won 11 of those games where it was decided by one score. And obviously the Giants being one of them, 27-24, they had a 24-16 lead late, thanks to a block punt, but then the Giants scored a touchdown there right around a two-minute warning, and then as we all know, Joseph was the hero at the end. But with the Vikings and how they've played this year, and I think a lot of pressure is on them, even though nobody's going to talk about them, because this team was a two-seed the whole year. And yes, they are able to host a wild card game, but knowing that if they do win this game, they have to go on the road to San Francisco, a place where a lot of people think that they're going to have no shot to win. But that's for next week if they do get past this game. I can see the Giants being in this game. And why would it be any different than what we saw three weeks ago? Daniel Jones, give it up. He's played very well. He's been efficient this year. Steady, solid, not spectacular, but he's definitely two of those three out of all the S's. And Saquon Barkley, who got a bye week for him last week, you think he's going to be revved up and ready to go? The giant offense, who, as we know, does not have a lot of star players on the offensive side of the ball, Sands Barkley. When you're talking about guys like Richie James, Darius Slayton, their offensive line is good, not great. And again, overall, solid, steady, not spectacular. And going up against the likes of Justin Jefferson, Dalvin Cook, and we know that the Vikings can score with anybody in the league. But I could see this coming down to a field goal or certainly a one-score game. I would have to think that the Vikings prevail here. Now, one of these road teams is going to win, and I picked the Chargers to win. Would I be shocked if the Giants win this game? Absolutely not. And I wouldn't be surprised if they win. I'm not going to say going away. But if it's a thing where they win 24-14, I would not be surprised. But to me, it's going to be more on the ineptitude of Kirk Cousins being that guy in the spotlight, not being able to perform because we've seen with Kirk Cousins, he's put up some duds in the past. And I'm not going to just say the postseason, but the game against Dallas 40-3, the game in Lambeau just a couple of weeks ago, we could go back to week two against the Eagles. He has those moments where he's... 18 for 34, 150 yards, one touchdown, and three interceptions. He could put up those type of stinkers. Would I be surprised if he did that here against the Giants? I would not. And with Kayvon Thibodeau, the first-round pick this past year, he's a guy that can wreck a game. So I would not be surprised if that's, if that's the case. But I would think that the Vikings will prevail somewhat a similar score what we saw there on Christmas Eve. But I will say... Vikings 26, Giants 23. If Lamar Jackson's not going to play in the Sunday night game, and it looks like Tyler Huntley isn't going to 
be either. How is Anthony Brown going to keep his team in the game when the Bengals, who themselves have won, think about this, 12 of the last 14 and 8 in a row going into the postseason. So similar to the 49ers where they've run the table since, I would think, going back to what, late October? And the Bengals, since probably early November, are now at a point that where they're going to probably play against a third-string quarterback. How are the Ravens going to have any shot to win this game? If Lamar Jackson is going to play, and I understand there have been a lot of rumblings about him being 100% healthy and him staying out because he's playing for a contract, as we know he's going to be a free agent this offseason, and all these different storylines and all these different rumors about whether he's truly hurt or he's just trying to protect himself because he knows if he goes down with an injury, he's not going to get the big payday. We could throw that aside. If Jackson's not going to perform and he's not going to play come Sunday night, there's no way that the Ravens are going to have a shot, even if they are a division opponent, even if they do know the Bengals like the back of their hand. To me, it's not going to matter because the Bengals are going to be primed. They're going to be ready. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of talk. And if there hasn't been any talk this week about them trying to get back to where they were last year on that field at SoFi, fourth and one where Aaron Donald wrecked the play and the confetti started to come down for the Rams, if that's going to be burned in their memory, then the Ravens have no shot to win this game. And as it is, I think they're going to have a rocking chair type of game. I'll say 30 to 16. And in the Monday night game, I think the Cowboys, as talented as they are, with them, it's always when the other shoe is going to drop. Sadly, that's just how this, I'm not going to go as far back for McCarthy because he's only been here a few years. But since Dak Prescott has been the quarterback, I understand in 2016 in his opening round game against the Packers, and that was a divisional round, how he played well in that game, but it was that third and 20 throw by Aaron Rodgers to Jared Cook on the sideline, which set up the game-winning field goal for them. So I get it that you can't fault Dak Prescott there. And then they beat the Lions in that playoff win before losing on the road to the Rams. And that was when they played in the Coliseum. And then we could look back, them losing last year as they did to the Niners and how that game just unraveled for them, whether it was being undisciplined, all of the offensive false starts and holding penalties, of course, the end of the game, how that was managed with Dak not giving the ball to the linesman to be able to put the ball down so they could get a snap and one last play into the end zone when they were down 23-17, all of that. So Prescott knows that the spotlight is squarely on him. And Tampa, we know that there's not a lot expected out of them despite the fact that Tom Brady is the quarterback. Because for a team that was 8-9 and nine, and a team that underachieved all year, that's not a team that I'm going to look at that they're going to just flick the switch and all of a sudden they're going to be back in 2020 mode to where three weeks from now we may see them in an NFC Championship game. Could it happen? Would I be surprised? Well, it is Tom Brady, but the Bucs are 8-9. But at least for one day, you know in their building that the Buccaneers can prevail and may prevail and beat the Cowboys based on their recent playoff history. Would I be shocked if Dallas walks out of 
Raymond James Stadium with a resounding 28-10 to 10 victory? I would not. But would I also be surprised that if they're up 28-10 and then the Buccaneers have the ball with two minutes remaining and they're down by six for them to win the game? I would not. I'm going to pick the Cowboys here because they are due to win one of these playoff games and a road one at that. And I really think that if the Cowboys do win a game that they could have wind in their sails and quite possibly they could be going to Philadelphia to play the Eagles. And we know the Eagles are not 100%. And even though they have the bye and for Lane Johnson and even for Jalen Hurts, they're going to try to come back as healthy as they possibly can. But the Cowboys are going to be a live dog in that game. But that is for then, possibly. And for right now, I think the Cowboys will win 24-19. to And let's see what Micah Parsons is going to do in this game because he's going to be a guy that everybody's going to have on their radar to kind of wreck the game for the Cowboys on the defensive side. And the same even goes for a guy like Bradley Chubb. Uh, What's happened to him ever since he went to Miami? And I talked about this weeks ago, so you can check the receipts. This would be the time for Bradley Chubb to go and wreck a game where he'll have three sacks, two forced fumbles, to at least have the Bills be on their heels a little bit. And a guy that they traded with Denver, signed a big-time contract, five years, over $100 million, and what has this guy done since he's been a member of the Dolphins? Absolutely nothing, or at least not in a big game, so I just thought to throw that in there. Because if the Dolphins have any shot to win, he's also going to have to play a factor too. But, back to the Cowboys, I think they're going to prevail here and put Tampa out of their misery considering they've been pretty much in sleepwalk mode and I do not trust Todd Bowles as far as I could throw him. I'm sure there'll be a coaching blunder along the way despite the fact that I can't even trust Mike McCarthy, but I think McCarthy is miles better than Todd Bowles, so therefore I think the Cowboys will win there Monday night. Quickly, a couple of things. Really, one thing in particular. Black Monday wasn't your typical Monday of years past. Now, five minutes after the Texans lost, Lovey Smith was shown the door. And I didn't really touch on this a lot on Monday, only because I wanted to get to not only just a wild card round, but also to recap NFL Week 18. But for the Texans, who who knows? Are they going to go after Sean Payton? Are they going to even attempt to maybe even dial... Jim Harbaugh, that remains to be seen. Now, they did not get the number one pick based on their win over Indianapolis and with the Bears winning. And to me, that's much ado about nothing because it looks like the Bears are going to probably draft defense, I would think. They have their quarterback. The GM had already stated that Justin Fields is their future. Now, they would have to be blown away, he did say, on whether or not a deal can be consummated for a team that wants to either move up or flip-flop to maybe even think about trading Justin Fields or maybe wanted to move up to get that number one pick. But I think the Bears would stay put and obviously not draft a quarterback. So where the Texans, in all likelihood, have the Bryce Youngs of the world, have guys like that who they could look to for the draft to see if they could finally find their franchise quarterback. And then you had... In Arizona, Cliff Kingsbury, and we talked about this last year when he got his extension, even coming off of a playoff appearance and a dreadful one at that in the 
game against the Rams last year where they lost 34-11. to But Kingsbury's shown the door. He's owed money, I believe, until 2027, which is ridiculous when you think about it. And the GM, Steve Keim, he also stepped aside. So there is a reshuffling of the deck in Arizona to where they have to bring in a new GM, a new coach, Kyler Murray, who's going to be rehabbing from an ACL injury. So talk about disarray out in the desert. How Michael Bidwell, the owner, is going to kind of put this team together, starting from the top with the GM, then coach, etc., I don't think any of the top candidates, the aforementioned Sean Payton, even Jim Harbaugh, are going to think to go there. So who knows? Is he going to promote from within? Is he going to go outside for the hot coordinator? Is he going to look at a guy like D'Amico Ryans, who a lot of people think is the next coordinator in waiting? Who knows? Maybe he even goes back to Texas as he was a former Houston Texan player back in the mid-late 2000s into the 20-teens. All that remains to be seen. But for the Cardinals, who had just a nightmarish year from last offseason till now, let's see what they do to try to get themselves back on the beam to some semblance of respectability, considering that they did make it to the playoffs just a year ago. So that's what I got there with the NFL. Quickly with the college football, because there's nothing really to, to discuss here. This was a complete clinic from start to finish, an absolute drubbing by the Bulldogs. And we talked about it ad nauseum on the Thursday podcast last week. And even Monday, I should say, because the game happened Monday night. So in my preview, I discussed how TCU, they're going to need the same breaks that they got in the Michigan game in order for them to not only win the game, but just be in the game. Because as I mentioned even if on an even playing field with no turnovers, a clean game, is TCU still in the game by the half? And what we saw there Monday night, even after being down 10 nothing, where TCU fumbled the ball as Georgia scored to make it 7 nothing, and then they kicked a field goal, which we thought, all right, let's see what TCU is going to do from this point out. They did get the big pass play from Duggan 60 yards down the field, which set themselves up for the quarterback sneak or really the quarterback draw into the end zone to make it 10-7. And you thought, all right, well, now TCU, they fought back. Let's see if they could make a stop here, make this game interesting. And from that point on, it was touchdown followed by interception, touchdown followed by another interception, touchdown, 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 touchdown. Yes, there was a punt there at the start of the third quarter where Georgia had the ball and actually went three and out. And that was actually a surprise and a moral victory for the Horned Frogs. But Georgia just showed who's boss. Back-to-back champions, 65-7. to Stetson Bennett with another big game. Brock Bowers, 7 for what was it, 152 with a touch. 240 yards on the ground. TCU had no shot. They had 188 yards for the game, and a third of those came on that pass play, as I mentioned. I mean, what more can you say? There is nothing to discuss, as I mentioned, other than everything that I just encapsulated in about, what, a a two-and-a-half-minute span? Maybe even less than that. And Georgia, back-to-back, first time since Alabama did it in the early 2010s. And TCU, I get it. They got a ton of breaks. 
They deserve to be in the championship game. But for those who are thinking that Cinderella could beat the likes of a team like Georgia or Alabama or even Ohio State. And that's the one thing too. Michigan had to be sick to their stomachs watching this game because knowing that TCU was awful and knowing that they shot themselves in the foot time after time after time in that game, ah, they probably hadn't slept up until the championship game and now they're not going to sleep for another month. And understandably and rightfully so because not to say Michigan would have put up a better effort. You would think they would have based on what they did throughout the course of the regular season, but that's neither here nor there at this point. It's all about the Georgia Bulldogs and what they did, so congratulations to them. Kirby Smart, another championship, back-to-back, and that is it for the college football season. And one last thing before I move on. There was a sad story, the passing of a one Charles White. And I understand that a lot of people look at Charles White as a guy who was a Heisman Trophy winner at USC, part of Tailback U when you think about guys like O.J. Simpson, Mike Garrett, Marcus Allen after him, even Reggie Bush, who was just inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, and you could talk about cheating and all that, but still, he was a great college player, Reggie Bush, but passed away at the age of 78 last night, and Charles White was a great college football player. Didn't really translate into the pros as he had a long career, but not the career a lot of people thought that he would have. And it's a shame because when he was coming out of college and a lot of people thought that he was going to be in that same mold to where he was going to have that long NFL career, he only rushed for 3,000 yards or a little bit over 3,000 yards. So for a guy that didn't really have the storied career that he had in college. And that happens. Look at a guy like Marcus Dupree, Oklahoma. That guy was a bull in a china shop. But when he got to the pros, now he did suffer a bad knee injury, but he was never the same. And he played in the USFL and didn't really have the longevity or the career that a lot of people would have thought coming out of college. And this is the same for a guy like Charles White, who was drafted by the Cleveland Browns, didn't have a lot of success there, later met up with John Robinson, his old coach at USC, played for the Rams for five years, and again, had a pedestrian career, but is well known for what he did when he was at USC. So thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to him. The cause of death unknown, but I just thought to pay my respects to Charles White and what he did, especially during his college days there at Southern Cal. Now as I put on my High tops to go to the NBA and had an interesting week in the association. Start off with KD. We talked about that on Monday where he suffered a knee injury in Miami. And now he's going to be out for a month where his meniscus, I believe there's a sprain, no surgery needed, just rest. So with Durant out of the lineup and based on what I read that the Nets, they are ready for the challenge. They are focused even not having their... MVP candidate this year. We know the type of year that KD has had to this point. So the Nets, who are currently two games behind the Celtics at the top of the Eastern Conference, and ever since the Kyrie drama earlier this year, they have just steamrolled to the top of the conference, and even the division for that matter, because both the Celtics and Nets obviously are in the the Atlantic. So we'll see how the Nets fare without KD moving forward till about the middle of next month. You would think probably around the All-Star break. But when we have some reunions and some returns, 
which highlight the NBA week. Donovan Mitchell goes back to his old stomping grounds as he was in Utah for the first time since the trade. Put up 46 points in a loss to the Jazz, but he did receive a standing ovation. Of course, he wasn't one of the guys that wanted out of Utah. And remember, Rudy Gobert left before he did when he was traded to Minnesota. And just weeks after that, maybe even a little bit longer, Mitchell then was traded to the Cavaliers and has done very well there in Cleveland to where they could possibly be a threat in the Eastern Conference. They're currently fourth in the standings. But Mitchell did get his just due big ovation there, put up 46 points in a loss. And we all know that comes on the heels of him scoring 71 the week before as he's had an MVP caliber season himself. You had, speaking of MVP, Steph Curry now back in Golden State where he was out with a shoulder injury for the last two, two and a half weeks. And even though he scored 24 in a loss to Phoenix, but that was a Phoenix team that did not have Chris Paul, did not have DeAndre Ayton or Devin Booker in the lineup. So the Warriors, we could talk about The hangover, the punch from the training camp between Jordan Poole and the punch led by Draymond Green. We could even talk about how Green came out and said that they're, not that there's dysfunction, but there's something off with the team. And now that we're at the halfway point, because the Warriors are what, 20 and 21, I think, at this juncture. And you would have to think that the Warriors is going to be an uphill battle for this team from here on out. They may have their runs. They may have a stretch where they're going to play well and maybe get to the middle of the pack. But I do not see it, at least for this year, the Warriors going on a run to where they're going to be threatening the Denver Nuggets, the Memphis Grizzlies, or the New Orleans Pelicans for the top spot in the Western Conference. Sometimes years are just like that. We would want to think or even have hope that, ah, they'll be all right, or ah, don't worry, they'll make a run, or they'll... Well, the Denvers and a lot of these other teams out West, they've been consistent throughout the whole year. The Warriors have been the flip side of that. And even with everybody in tow, whether it be Clay, Steph, Draymond, Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, doesn't matter. This Warrior team, at least for me, of what I've seen, not that I'm watching every second or every minute of Warriors contests, but they have not been able to get on track at any point this season. So why should I believe or even think that halfway through, that all of a sudden, the switch is going to be flicked and they're going to go on a run where they're going to win 14 of 17. I don't see it. So that's what I have there with the Warriors. You had a crazy stat line this week where the Miami Heat set an NBA record for free throws as far as hitting them consecutive, and they needed each and every one of them to beat the Oklahoma City Thunder where they were 40 for 40 from the free throw line. Jimmy Butler himself was 23 of 23, which was one off the record by James Harden, who I believe hit 24 in a row in a game back in 2018 when he was a member of the Rockets. But to think, if they were 38 for 40, and we all know 38 for 40 from the free throw line is excellent, but they only won 112-111. So if they went 38 for 40, they would have lost by one point. And needing each and every one of those free throws shows how free throw shooting is important especially late in games and especially in the postseason. But here in a game in January, I just thought it was something to highlight because how often are teams going to be perfect from the free throw line, make 40 attempts at that, and then for them to eke out a win in the process in what we saw there the other night against the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I just thought to bring that up. 
As far as the NBA on a whole, not much really to get into. I know that the Lakers have played a little bit better, and I don't want to get on that whole Laker thing because we know that they're a lightning rod for news and a lightning rod for just them being who they are and who's on that team. No latest update as far as Anthony Davis with his foot, so we still have to wait on that. But there has been some separation out West because remember, about a month ago this time, we were talking about how the West was separated by three, four games from seeds one through 11. Well, you can forget about that because when we look at one through 11 now, they are separated by eight and a half and there's a big drop off after the four seed and that being the Sacramento Kings and the Mavericks because they're both tied. You have the Clippers at seven, then Phoenix and Golden State, eight games behind Denver for the top spot out West. And then you have Portland, Lakers, etc. down the list. So that three and a half, four game span for 10, 11 teams, that is out the window as we've seen some separation there out in the West. And in the East, it's pretty much the same as I mentioned, Celtics, Nets, Bucks, Sixers, Cavs, Knicks have played well here as they had a four game winning streak snap, but then they won last night against Indiana or a couple nights ago. No, it was last night. So the NBA will continue to march on as we're now at the halfway and even past the halfway point for a lot of teams as 41 games in that threshold. And the same can be said for the NHL as their all-star break is a week from this coming Friday because they'll have their skills competition. The game is in South Florida, I believe on the 21st, that's Saturday. And the NHL, there really isn't much to discuss or really get into Not a lot of sexiness as far as what's going on. Yes, I can talk about teams that have been playing well, teams that are streaking. Let's look at Seattle. They've won six in a row, and they're actually showing everybody that last year in their inaugural season into the NHL was a bit of a fluke, or maybe this is the fluky season to where they're playing over their heads, and at 40 games, 24-12-4, and so much more hockey to be played, but can we keep an eye on the Kraken as we get deeper into the season? I guess we can. We know about the Bruins. We've talked about them. It seems like every time I've discussed the NHL. But we all know this is the season for football, the postseason. A lot of it is going to be tailored around that. So the NHL, as much as I've discussed about them from the start of the season, and now they're hitting a little bit of a lull because, again, not really much that's going on throughout the ice, whether it's injury-wise or teams that have either been streaking and been hot or been cold or top players that have been out of the lineup. We've talked about Nathan McKinnon. He's a guy that, as we all know, after winning a cup, one of the top players in the league. But I don't even know. I think he's still out. Not a lot has been said about his recovery, about him being back in the lineup. I know they lost to the Panthers there a couple of nights ago. But even a guy like McKinnon, who, as we all know, is one of the top players in the sport, And I'm sure that the Avalanche will welcome with open arms considering that they've kind of been middling this year for a team that has won the Cup. Maybe a little bit of hangover. I know that they've had some injuries, obviously, with the aforementioned McKinnon. But Colorado, when we look at them out West, and just to give you a very good idea as to how this season has gone, they're on the outside looking in when it comes to the playoffs as they're sixth in the Central Division. So... Plenty of hockey to be played. I'm sure the Avalanche will go on a run. I'm sure a lot of teams that we haven't really discussed will also be in position for one of the top four seeds in their division. And then as we break down the wild card, etc. 
But as the All-Star break approaches, and as we take a look into the second half, I would say, not this coming Monday, but the following Monday, we'll get an entire overview of the NHL, better look at some of these teams, who's going to be trending north, who's going to be trending south, as we continue to march on, not only the NBA season, but of course, what's happening on the ice as well. Finally, let me get to a couple of baseball notes, and the soap opera that was the Carlos Correa story is finally put to rest. And the reason why I say finally is because he was in a press conference there with the Twins, re-upping six years, $200 million, and that was the big mystery over the last few weeks on whether or not Correa was going to be a guy that was going to sign on the dotted line with the Mets. We know the Twins had come in in the 11th hour to bring back their former shortstop, as we know, signed that three-year deal with an opt-out after last year, and as we saw, he did opt out. Was supposed to go to San Francisco. That didn't work out. Then the Mets came in. That didn't work out. And the Mets did put up an offer. Six years at $157 million. And I believe some incentive money on top of that. But in the end, he ends up taking six for 200. It could go as high as 10 years for $270 million. Which when you think about it, was $15 million less than the original offer. That the Twins put forth. 10 years for $285 million. So to think. Twins put 10 for 285. He balks at that. San Francisco has a 13 for 350. The medicals came back. San Francisco said, uh uh-uh. uh. The Mets swoop in. We'll give you 12 for 315. Medicals come back. Uh uh-uh. uh. Mets said, how about 6 for 157 for money that we could put in incentives so the contract could be whatever it is? Boris said, no way. Twins said, how about 6 for 200? And therefore, you can have some incentive money to where if you play 10 years, you'll get up to $270 million. All right, we'll take that. Now listen, is Carlos Correa going to be crying to the bank? Absolutely not. Nobody's going to feel sorry that he signed a six-year $200 million deal. But if he just stayed put, he would have had $15 million more if you want to nitpick or grasp for straws. Of course, we could say that. But in the end, he stays in Minnesota. He doesn't come to the Mets. And I know that there were some Mets fans that were on the fence. There were some Mets fans that were like, oh, Correa would have been great. And there was others like myself that thought, I'm not going to go as far as say good riddance. But, hey, no harm, no foul. I could care less. And if you're the Mets, you just move on with what you have. You have Escobar at third. You have a guy waiting in the wings at Brett Beatty, your former number one pick from a few years back. Was Carlos Correa the final piece to the Met puzzle of them winning a championship a la Gary Carter back in 1985? I think not. To me, the Mets as constructed now, and I still think they need another bat. Was that Correa? Could he have been that guy? Yes, but as far as his medicals, and even though that injury happened many years ago, and it hasn't resurfaced, but uh uh-uh. I can't trust a long-term contract and possible injuries, and that can happen to anybody, I understand that, but no. I don't want anything near that because the Mets, when it comes to some of these contracts, are a disaster. Think of Jason Bay. To a certain extent, I understand he brought us a no-hitter and did pitch well at the beginning of that, but Johan Santana. There's so many other contracts I could talk about in Met history. Mo Vaughn. I mean, please. So we don't need another guy that's going to come in here that is not going to be healthy at the back end and not going to be productive. And I get it. For Steve Cohen, it's Monopoly money, but still, 
I don't want any part of it as a fan because I've been there, done that, seen the movie, read the book, enough. We can go elsewhere, and I'm sure maybe come trade deadline, they could get that bat a la 2015, you want and we saw what happened there to where hopefully the Mets could finally get that brass ring that myself and the fan base has been waiting for, for count them, 37 years and onward. And then you have Trevor's story where the Red Sox fan who has not been happy this offseason, the small stocking stuffers that were Chris Martin, Justin Turner, Kenley Jansen, all right, they short up their bullpen, and that's fine. But with Xander Bogarts going to San Diego, and yes, they had to re-sign Rafael Devers, understood. But now you get news the other day that Trevor Story is going to need Tommy John surgery to repair that elbow to where he's going to be out in all likelihood till the All-Star break? Seriously? If you knew you had an elbow issue or there was something wrong with it, you couldn't get it checked at the end of the regular season to where you could have got surgery in November and maybe come back sometime in May? Uh, What happened there? And that just shows how more so on the player than it is the organization. Because I'm sure the player knew that there was something wrong with the elbow. He was already having problems throwing from second to first based on some of the stuff that I read. And it even went back to his days in Colorado because when you look at all these sabermetrics, how his velocity throwing from shortstop to first ranked near the bottom. And I would think the same for second to first, how those throws weren't as efficient and weren't as crisp as they were last year as a member of the Red Sox. So if that was an issue, Trevor Story, why didn't you get this taken care of early on? Why did you wait till January the 10th to say, oh, guess what, guys? I'm going to need surgery. Can I get this taken care of? And oh, by the way, I'll see you in the middle of the summer. What's that about? So the Red Sox fan, I'm sure, who was not pleased and as evidenced by the Bruin faithful at Fenway Park booing John Henry during the Winter Classic, and I'm sure, obviously, those Bruin fans are going to be Red Sox fans, And yes, they did sign Devers, which they absolutely had to do. And now your prized free agent possession from last year, who we would think was going to be moved to shortstop because of their previous shortstop, now residing in San Diego. And now you're not going to see him. So you're going to have to piecemeal a team or pick up somebody that's a stopgap to play shortstop because Story wasn't forthright about this injury to where now you're going to have him out of the lineup and not be on the team for some time after the 4th of July and probably before August 1st. You can't make it up. So that's what you have with baseball as we're about four and a half weeks. Think about that. From the start of pitches and catchers. So put that one in your pipe and smoke it. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, super grateful, thankful for you to pass by, take a shot at your boy, whether it's on your commute home, on the treadmill, shopping, cleaning your apartment, whatever it is. One more time, thank you so much for taking a chance on your boy to babble and spew about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review. Throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way to increasing the visibility, as I mentioned at the very top. 
If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, or suggestions, you could do so at the following on Instagram, TikTok, or Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. The J Reels Podcast at gmail.com is the email address. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth will go 100% to this production, to the upkeep of the website, to the equipment, everything that entails this experience from my lips to this microphone into your earbuds and speakers because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA as I like to say. I've been pretty much talking sports since birth. Maybe even inside the womb kicking and scratching as I'm trying to get out and I know that's a visual that is too much information for you guys and gals but you know where I'm coming from because I love to share my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critique, praise, Passion, fire, fury, energy on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, directed, in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the foot, baby. <laughs>